out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week is going to be the turn of the author journalist. It is going to be the one and only Pat Thomas, who I spoke to very recently to find out about Jerry Rubin. Who um, a few years ago he put a book, he brought a book out titled "Did It," and that's a subtitle from "Yippee to Yuppie." Jerry Rubin, an American revolutionary, available from all good bookshops and also online. So anyway, this is the interview, and after several minutes of casual chat, we got down to that very exciting subject that was, yes, a background to the world that is Jerry Rubin. Anyway, Pat, take it away. In a, in a way, we'll, we'll get to that. Um, so basically, um, I have a brother who's 10 years older than me. And in 1973 or four, when I was about 10, my brother was about 18. He brought a book into the house called Steal This Book by Abby Hoffman. Oh, right. It was Jerry Rubin's uh, partner. You know, it's, it's you know, I, I often compare them to like Lennon and McCartney or Jagger and Richards or something. And so steal this book. Uh, I was a little too young to understand the political ramifications, but it had a lot of humor. It was very anti-authoritarian, you know, anti-authoritarian. It was also like how to, uh, you know, make phone calls for free, you know, from pay boxes, uh, how to steal albums by putting them in a pizza box, uh, how to blow things up. Um, anyway, thought it was quite funny. And uh, really kind of my first obsession was really with Abby Hoffman. Uh, and Abby Hoffman at that point was in hiding. He, he spent a good chunk of the 70s kind of running away from the FBI and all that stuff. Uh, so when he reemerged around 1980, I uh, went to a couple of college campuses to hear him speak. Uh, by this time, Jerry Rubin had made some changes. Jerry had decided... Um, to shave off his beard and to stop trying to, uh, you know, mess with the government and, and kind of became a little more mainstream. Uh, but one of the reasons I wrote the book is Jerry wasn't, he, he never became a right winger. He never became a Republican. He never became a Ronald Reagan or Margaret Thatcher supporter. Unfortunately, the internet is filled with these misinformation and lies. Jerry wanted to make money, uh, because he had been orphaned and his parents were working class. Uh, he also believed in solar energy and green energy. He was trying to get people to invest in that. He was trying to get companies to take seriously the idea that they should have people of color. So he, he just, you know, he was no longer a hippie and he was no longer a militant, but that didn't mean he wasn't progressive. Anyway, long story short, I realized about 10 plus years ago that there was no books at all about Jerry Rubin. Abby Hoffman has several different biographies. And so I approached Jerry Rubin's family and they let me go through thousands of items, many of which is in my book, Did It. There's personal letters and his phone book and journals and photographs and things. And then I wound up interviewing almost a hundred people who were friends with Jerry and Abby and the Yippies. Many of course were Yippies themselves. And Anyway, that's the long, short version of yes, how of, of how it came across. Because it it is quite an extraordinary story. And like you, 
I don't know. I was born in 64, so I kind of missed very much the oh, 60s. We're the same age. Okay. We're, oh, okay. <laughs> so it was very uh, much later that Abby Hoffman came onto my radar. And I was, for some reason, obsessed with the 60s and the counterculture and became sort of much more interested and dug down. And you started, you know, with the basic things of watching Woodstock or Monterey Pop Festival and listen to the albums. And, and then you start yeah. digging a bit further. And then there's little stories like, you know, Pete Townsend, you know, hitting, you know, Hoffman with his guitar at Woodstock and, you know, these kind of things start to come up and then this other character appears, Jerry Rubin, as well yeah. as all these other bits and pieces and these kind of, you know, and obviously in the UK, Vietnam wasn't such a big gig as as it was in, you know, in America and then you had Nixon. So, so Rubin was this kind of interesting character and it's interesting because I was in the late 80s that I kind of got this book, which does feature all those little bits which I was quite excited by because it, sure, it, sure. it had all those things about how you you know could just pretend to get you know make out that you're you know you're a promoter or you know how to get free records via sort of sort of starting a publication and all these kind of little scams I suppose he was a real scam merchant but Reuben was the kind of the character who started so radically and then had this incredible shift but then at the same time you know had people like you know, John Lennon and Yoko Ono sort of being very kind of uh, sort of fatuated by him as well. Yeah, well, um, one of the PDFs I sent you was very UK centric, which is that Ruben came to uh, the UK, I think, in 70 and was on the David Frost show and sort of took it over. There was there was a little bit of a, a British yippie contingent. There was um, his name is right on the tip of my tongue, uh, Mick Farron, who was yes. in the dance, right? And so they, you know, they took over the Frost Show. They started a smoking. They started smoking pot on the Frost Show. Uh, then Jerry went over to Northern Ireland, where I think he hung out a little bit with the IRA, and then he got deported. I don't know if you had a chance to pour over all that, but so you know, so Ruben, you know, had this whole little. Uh, you know, in fact, one of the pages in my book, and again, I think it's in the PDF I sent you, is all these front page news of all the major UK newspapers saying, you know, get this scumbag out of the UK, he has to be deported, uh, call the home office, let's get rid of him. So, you know, Jerry is far from a household name in the UK, but he did have this sort of 15 minutes worth of fame over there. Yes. Now, John and Yoko saw this David Frost event and thought it was amazing. So when John and Yoko, by this point, they were politicized, right? They had done Power to the People and, uh, you know, these types of songs. So when John and Yoko, and again, this was another chapter I say you, when John and Yoko moved to New York in late 71, the first person they meet is Jerry Rubin, and they start talking about, let's get Nixon out of office, right? Let's, let's, uh, let's do a big concert tour with John and Yoko and maybe Dylan. Uh, you know, so so Lennon, I mean, I'm sorry, Ruben is very responsible in many ways for uh, the album Sometime in New York City, and he's even mentioned a few times by name. There's, you know, standing on the corner waiting for Jerry to show up. That's that's Lennon's song. And then there's a Yoko Ono song about uh, something about, you know, Eldridge Cleaver and Jerry Ruben. So, so Jerry was very integral to John and Yoko during their political years. I personally love Lenin's political songs. I know a lot of people, you know, think they're, they're shit, but um, anyway, I'm a fan. 
<laughs> well, I was always quite stark because I was quite young. My brother had a couple of albums in the early 70s and one of them was a, a John Lennon one but, and it had that woman, you know, the, the song, you know, Woman is the of the World. And Thank that was like, wow, that's kind of quite different to anything. And, and you know, bizarrely, I kind of got it. You know, I, I wouldn't, mm -hmm. you know, I'm not boasting, but I kind of understood what he was kind of coming up about and you know another one on the album about everybody loves you when you're six foot under and you know it was a very dark album you know and it was you know yeah. and, that, that, and before then I'd been you know that age where I just watched the Beatles films and they were all fun and having a gay time weren't they so suddenly yeah. you got this one character who was just so sort of had so much energy and, and sort of um, edge to him as well are, are you able just to explain a little bit about the the whole idea of this this um the chicago eight you know just to give an idea of what this is because oh, okay. it's well basically you know the vietnam war was very important or you know very yes i guess that's uh you know it was a topic of conversation for young people in america because we had a draft in other words i guess you'd also call it cons conscription maybe conscription. yes so in other words if you were for 18, 19, 20, 21, 22 years old, you could easily be told, hey, you're going to Vietnam whether you like it or not. So obviously young adult men got very politicized and young adult women you know, didn't wanna have their boyfriends get their heads blown off. So that became such a thing. And that's really what Jerry Rubin and Abby Hoffman's legacy is all about, which is they wanted to stop the Vietnam War they wanted as many young people to protest. And they did that by incorporating sort of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Because, you know, a lot of the anti-Vietnam War activists were very, you know, it was very academic. Like, well, we want to let you know that um, we've been in Vietnam since 1954 because the French got there first, right? And, you know, if you're 18 years old, you don't want a friggin' history lesson. You want someone to hand you a joint, you get high, Someone tells you the Vietnam War is effed up and you're like, yeah, I'm not going. Right. And so Jerry and Abby, that was their thing. And then they aligned with some of the more academics. They aligned with Tom Hayden and Rennie Davis. They aligned with the Black Panthers. You know, a lot of young black men were getting sent to Vietnam. And as Muhammad Ali famously said, you know, no Vietnamese ever called me the yes. N word. Yeah. Right. So the Chicago Eight were a group of guys, along with hundreds, if not thousands of other young people that descended on Chicago in August of 1968. In America, when we're gonna pick a president, there is a convention where all the politicians get together and they go, you know, do we want Hubert Humphrey? Do we want Bobby Kennedy? Do we want, you know, unfortunately Bobby Kennedy, who ideally would have become the next president, he was assassinated, right? Uh, in June of 68. And I see that very much as a political assassination because he wanted to end the Vietnam War. I, you know, without getting to this whole big thing, I, I, think, I think Kennedy was assassinated by the US government. That's a whole nother topic. But anyway, Hubert Humphrey, who was the, now the then vice president, he became, who, who was gonna be the next Democratic president. And so thousands of these hippies are in the streets of Chicago protesting, but they're not rioting. They're not breaking things. They're not throwing Molotov cocktails. They're not busting windows. That happened when the Chicago police came in and started beating the SHIT out of these guys, right? In fact, if you look at the films, it's the cops that are rioting. They're busting open heads 
with clubs, right? Um, this type of thing. And so Nixon got elected and Nixon probably should have thanked these guys because what happened was, is the average American looked at these riots and said, well, obviously the Democratic Party is unwieldy. They can't even handle you know, their own protesters. But Nixon hated hippies so much. He hated anti-Vietnam War people so much that he decided to prosecute these eight guys. And they were known as the Chicago Eight. And it was a little bit of everything. There were a couple of academics. There were a couple of hippies. There was a Black Panther. There was a pacifist. And that was a political trial. You know, it, it, it's kind of funny. We think of America as being so democratic. This is this is something that could have happened in Germany in the 30s yeah. or somewhere else, right? Well, what happened was, is the trial made Jerry Rubin and Abby Hoffman more popular with young people. So all of a sudden, if you were a young person, you went off to college, you'd hang up a picture of Mick Jagger on one wall and you'd hang a picture of Jerry Rubin on the other wall. They used to make giant Jerry Rubin posters for college kids. I, I, I have one. They're huge. They're like three feet by four feet. So Rubin and Hoffman became almost like rock stars. And this is not long after that, they met, you know, uh, John and Yoko. So. Yes. And then, because it's interesting, I was listening to one of his interviews or when he was being interviewed, and he, he sort of gets quite a, not a huge jail sentence, but compared to Abby Hoffman, he, he gets, you know, Abby Hoffman, does he have six days and, and uh, Ruben has six months or nine months, doesn't he? So, something like that. I mean, luckily, these guys were all acquitted. And, uh, you know, the, the, each of them served a few weeks or months in jail, but, you know, nobody thankfully did any years and years in jail, you know. Yes, which is quite lucky, because I think in, in the 60s, there was a guy called Hoppy Hopkins, who sort of got busted with a joint. And I think from talking to various people, he never quite got over it. But he was part of that London scene where I think Paul yeah. McCartney used to sort of hang out at some bookshop with people like Barry Miles and, uh, and such folk. So as the 70s progressed then, what happens to dear old Jerry? Because he does... You know, things well, obviously are, are beginning to change, aren't they? Well, you know, this is the problem with uh, <laughs> trying to be philosophical. You know, this is the problem with people who are not in the middle of it. So in other words, when I interviewed Jerry's friends, they said, look, we were hippie, yippie protesters, but we weren't famous. So if we we're walking down the streets of Manhattan and New York City, people generally left us alone. But, but in 1970 or 71, if Jerry Rubin was walking down the street in Greenwich Village in New York, some Republican would go up to him and say, you're Jerry Rubin, and then just punch him right in the face, right? Or he would get arrested and beat up by the police just for yeah. being Jerry Rubin. So there was this one last ditch attempt in the 1972 election, like I said, John and Yoko, uh, Jerry Rubin, a bunch of others wanted to try to force Nixon out of office. They wanted to, you know, the, the, the voting age in America used to be 21 years old. Nixon amazingly agreed to drop it down to 18. So all of a sudden there was another, I don't know, 1.5 million people who were now old enough to vote Nixon out. So they really thought that Nixon would get voted out and we would have George McGovern, Democratic senator, in. And when Nixon won a second time, 
well, first of all, long story short, it's in my book, Lenin basically had a nervous breakdown, you know, because he, he was so convinced that, you know, the good guys were going to win. And Rubin had a little bit of a nervous breakdown where he just said, you know what, when it comes to radical politics, I'm done. And so he leaves New York City right after the election. He drives to San Francisco. He shaves off his beard and he starts getting into a lot of things that were popular in the 70s, health food, yoga. Uh, there was a thing called Est that was kind of like um, group therapy, right? So he, he basically is cleansing himself, detoxing from all the years of the 60s of being beat up, pissed on, pooped on, you name it. And, and also a little bit about, uh, you know, his parents had died when he was like 18. So he's, he's kind of, you know, he's kind of just rebirths. And so for many years, he's really uh, spearheading part of what we call the new age movement. Mm -hmm. It was just, again, health, food, yoga, meditation. This was very, very popular in the United States. And I have a feeling probably, you know, popular with uh, in England to some degree as well you know, as the 60s turned into the 70s. And then by the end of the 70s, he decides to move back to New York City and he kind of invents the phrase social networking. We take this phrase for granted, we hear it all the time. I'm a social networker, I'm on Facebook, I'm on yes. LinkedIn, I'm on Twitter. Long before there was computers, Jerry, this, this was a way for him to kind of make money because also keep in mind, Nobody would hire this guy, even though, he, even though he now had a suit and a tie on, people thought that that was a con. They thought, well, what if I give Jerry Rubin the keys to my office and he blows it up on Saturday night, right? So the only way Jerry could eat, pay the rent and eat was to be self-employed. So he started these things called networking parties where he would hang posters up around New York City and he'd say, if you're a recent Harvard or Yale college graduate, come to this party on Saturday night and network with your alumni or if you're a electrical engineer come to this party because you know again pre-internet like-minded people couldn't find each other mm. right? and so this became a thing these these parties would bring in a five or six hundred people five bucks a piece there'd be cocktails and drinks he did that for several years and that became a thing um he was briefly on Wall Street. You know, if you, if you Google him, say, oh, he was on Wall Street. He sold out. He was a stockbroker. No, he was on Wall Street trying to get people to invest in solar panels and green energy like 10 or 15 years before anybody knew that, you know, knew about this stuff. And again, just because he had a suit and a tie on, he, he was not, he did not vote for Ronald Reagan. He did not support people like Maggie Thatcher. He was basically like, his fellow Chicago eight guy, Tom Aiden, he was a liberal Democrat with a tie, wearing yes. a tie. Which is quite interesting because, because having sort of, I, I was watching some interviews earlier and um, I mean, he, he, he's interesting, his kind of view on the sixties and, and the drug culture that happened during that period as well. So he'd obviously done a lot of reflecting and realized, and he, he's quite honest about the fact that, you know, they got it or he got it as wrong as anybody else you know he does he takes that ownership doesn't he? he he doesn't and here's the problem if he had stayed the same let's just pretend that he stayed with a beard and long hair and swing pot you'd be like hey man i saw jerry rubin in 1985 he was pathetic he, he looked like an old stupid hippie right or you young go i saw jerry rubin in 1985 he had a suit in other words 
he, he is going to be scolded no matter what he does. If he stays the same, people will go, he's pathetic. If he cleaned up like he did, people will say, oh, he sold out. You know what I mean? The problem with being a, a famous activist is at some point you're screwed <laughs> because you're neither left wing or right wing enough. Yes. Well, I think yeah. in the UK, what we yeah. definitely used to like is building someone up and then hoping it all goes terribly wrong and they end up penniless, homeless and hopefully a bit dead. You know, so, I mean, we, we didn't, you know, we struggle a lot with people who don't fit that little mold. You know, it's a bit like, oh my God, you know, that person's done really UK, well. Yeah. I don't, the, UK, the UK even does it to musicians. Oh yeah, we're very good so on musicians. They'll go, you know, you know, uh, I don't know. Uh, the band Pulp is the greatest friggin' band there ever was. And then after, oh, the band Pulp, they suck, right? Like I see this. I'm just using them as an example. I'm not even a fan. But my point is, is I've seen the Melody Maker declare some band God, and six months later say they should be taken out to the courtyard and shot. Right? <laughs> it's such a UK thing. Total yes. rubbish. So it is, it is quite interesting. But I've, I've, you know, having sort of gone through a bit of a hippie period and a bit of a sort of anarchist period. And then you kind of, you get more annoyed with the people that you're part of that community than the people outside that community who are attacking you. And, you know, and it's, and it's often that which gives people right. a bit of a change. And that's what often becomes quite tiring. It's not the so-called, you know, police or the establishment. It's actually the people within, the, within those kind of groups that, that can sort of wear you down. And I would imagine he must have had that within buckets, really. He, well, he, he did because, you know, the thing is, is his closest friends, many of them stayed yippies or hippies, but they still respected Jerry and Jerry respected him, right? So, so when I interviewed these people, they still liked Jerry. They still believed in Jerry. The, the people that seem to be taking pot shots at Jerry are people that never really knew him, but were somehow par part of the bigger community. In other words, they were you know, thousands of hippies and yippies, that kind of thing. So, so you're right. It's, 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 it's sort of the, you know, your fellow uh, punters who really can come in. And how did his relationship with Abby Hoffman develop over those years? Because Abby disappears for a long period of time. Well, one of the, one of the things that's explored in my book in a chapter I didn't send you, all the years that Abby was underground, Jerry would go visit him. You know, he might visit him in Mexico or he might visit him in some small town in Texas or, you know. And so Abby, on one hand, you know, he would publicly say, oh, you know, Jerry sold out. He put on a suit and a tie. But privately, Abby was like, hey, this guy's still my brother. And he supported me and I trust him. So, the, so there was a body, you know, again, I, I use a little bit of that John Lennon, Paul McCartney thing, you know, where they... They would occasionally lend in love to diss McCartney or put him down after the Beatles broke up. But, you know, at the end of the day, these, these guys had, you know, they still had a bond. You know, they really did. Yes. And so going in, because he survives the 80s, which is fantastic. He's halfway through the 90s. Then how's his life at that stage? Because obviously he dies in the most tragic, well, there's a lot of tragic ways of dying, but this is a particularly weird one, isn't it? Well... Jerry, Jerry, by the late 80s, he also, because his parents had both died young, in other words, his parents are roughly in their 40s. I think one gets cancer. 
another one has a heart attack. So, so Jerry became obsessed with it. Hey, I'm getting closer to 40 and 50. I don't want to die. So he became Mr. Health Food. And so he started selling like vitamin drinks and all this stuff, right? So that was, that was now Jerry's new way of making money was, you know, uh, I think he had a, a health drink called like Wow or Yow or something. But, but anyway, he wasn't being fulfilled politically or spiritually. And by spiritually, I don't necessarily mean religious. I mean more, you know, your spirit, like what, you know, what gets you out of bed in the morning, right? Yeah. So Jerry was starting to look at new possible political adventures. One thing was, is, you know, he lived here in Los Angeles that had a lot of disenfranchised black youth. So he was starting to look at, you know, what kind of programs could he put together to help black youth. He also started to think about his legacy. He, he wanted to get a documentary made about himself or maybe get an established author to do a biography. So those final years are Jerry kind of trying to figure this out. And actually on the last, I, I won't say the last day of his life because he's actually in a coma for a few weeks after that, but we'll say the last day that he was walking and talking as a normal person. He spent the afternoon with another old activist, not a famous one, talking about the types of things that they might do together. And, and Jerry was a lifelong pot smoker. So he was, he was, you know, still getting high and it was, it was the end of the day. It was like 5 PM. And now he had what they call the munchies. Like if you smoke a lot of pot, yes. you get hungry. So Jerry, unfortunately ran across four lanes of traffic trying to get to a restaurant and he did not make it. So he was run over by a car. He was then in a coma for about two weeks. And then finally he died. Yes. Oh, because because in the interview that I was watching where it's kind of edited, so it's just him, he seems to sort of completely distance himself from pot smoking and sort of that world. So he he obviously doesn't completely do it himself. No, I, I'm not sure. I I would have to say, I, I mean, the only thing I can think of is he he didn't want to encourage, like he didn't want to be responsible for encouraging other people to smoke because in the 60s he did. You know, I I, I can't. I can't answer why that would be, um, you know. Yes. And going back to the book, which is quite fantastically comprehensive from what I've seen so far. I mean, did it, did, did it take very long to put it together? And did you have a, a sense of responsibility? Because like you said, there's a few books that he's done, but nothing done by another person who's kind of sort of well, documented, archived and celebrated I, his life. I initially thought that I would write a very simple little paperback bio. So like if somebody like you said, tell me about Jerry Rubin, I go, hey, here's this, here's this uh, nine quid paperback. Yes. Read this in an afternoon, I'll tell you everything you need to know. But my publisher said, I don't want a little paperback. I want the big book. So his family, his, his, his wife uh, or ex-wife Mimi welcomed me into her home. I actually moved in with her for two months. And I went through thousands of items, you know, like I said, all these papers and things. And then she started calling people. She called, you know, Paul Krasner, who was a famous uh, radical journalist in his own right, good friend of Jerry's. The next thing I know, I went, I thought I might interview five or 10 people. I wound up interviewing, like I said, nearly a hundred. And then it took me three or four years to figure out what to do with this stuff. So a friend of mine, uh, Kathy Wolf, listened to all the interviews, right? Because all of a sudden I had like, you know, 50 hours worth of interviews. Oh my God, now what do I do? 
So she listened to him and took notes and she said, hey, here's a really good, she started dividing the quotes into topics, right? So you go, well, here's some great quotes about the Chicago Eight, and here's some great quotes about Woodstock or whatever. So the book after that, I, I now had a framework to work from. And I also read at least two or 300 other books. Uh, you know, Jerry might only be in a book for one paragraph, or he might be in the book for three paragraphs, but I, I gathered all this other information. And uh, long story short, um, you know, the book is available, by the way, in the UK. It's distributed by a company called Turnaround. Oh, yes. Turnaround book distribution. Uh, you know, so, so people can find it in the UK. It can be ordered at a local bookstore from Turnaround or directly from Turnaround, uh, their own website. So it's yes. not impossible yes. to get in the UK. And I, you know, I've seen it obviously on on Amazon. So did it? Was it the case? Because obviously it's quite an extraordinary book to to do. And from you know the PDFs you showed me, did you have quite a lot of help with editors and designers to sort of bring it together? Yeah, there's a guy named Jacob Covey who works. Uh, the book was published by a company in Seattle called Fanographics Books that does a lot of um, what we call graphic novels and cartoon. You know, like you know, sort of cartoons for adults for lack of a better word yeah and so he has a really good eye and if you if you flip through the book you see like little drawings or little cool you know there's a lot going on in the book it's very it's very artistically done and that's that's really uh jacob's uh magic if you will you know yeah because i don't know if you I wouldn't quite call the book psychedelic vibrant pardon ahead, sorry I was going to say a few years ago at the dear old V&A museum in in London um, there was an exhibition called So You Want a Revolution so it was all sort of talking about the social political and cultural times and so I went and interviewed quite a few people including Joe Boyd who was part of that scene who produced people like the early Pink Floyd and then went on to do the incredible string band and uh, and Nick Drake and also Barry Miles and I did ask him I said what what happened to you in the 70s because obviously you were there in the 60s all you know with the radical sort of alternative scene setting up all these events and bookshops and galleries etc etc and he said well actually we just got tired we were just exhausted by the end of the 60s and thus you know his his story doesn't end but suddenly he can't keep it going I and I kind of realized with people like Jerry Rubin who must have taken that to another level Emotionally, he, he must have felt absolutely shattered by it all. Well, that, that's what I was talking about about uh, a few minutes ago in the interview. That's why he went to, to San Francisco and got into yoga and meditation and health food, because he was exhausted, you know. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I love and respect Barry Miles, but, you know, Barry was tired. Ruben was probably even more tired. Yes, absolutely. He was on the front, front lines of this stuff, you know. So, you know, I think, frankly, if Jerry had not done that, he might have become an alcoholic. He might have became chronically depressed. You know, in other words, he, he was smart enough to recharge his own batteries. No, nobody can recharge batteries for you. Right? Yeah, You have to recharge your own batteries, whatever that might be. So, you know, some people drop out and they go to India for six months or whatever. Um, so, yeah, that, that was the thing. But Jerry also had, still had all this manic energy, which is why he got into the social networking and then he got into the health food drinks and all of that you know yes um, and, 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 and so 
on that sort of side of, of being able to make great changes, a bit like what David Bowie did throughout his life, where he was able to sort of... Uh, yeah. Kind of, be kind of obsessed with you know soul music or get obsessed with kind of German electronic kind of soundscapes with his album Low. I mean, obviously with with Jerry. I mean, one of the things which is kind of interesting is, is the fact that he he was kind of an early adopter or certainly saw the potential in Apple computers, didn't he? Well, you know that yeah, a little bit. There, it says on his Wikipedia page that he was an early investor in Apple. Uh, that is a myth. But what Jerry did see is that he started to see his, his girlfriend of the time. He, he, by the time he died, he was divorced and he was uh, dating another woman. And, and she's interviewed in the book. He, he was starting to look at these you know, personal computers in the early 90s and was in, began to anticipate things like email um, and that type of thing. You know, so Jerry you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say he was a technological wizard, but he was a little bit of a visionary when it comes, I keep coming back to this word networking, you know? Yes. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I'm not sure what else to say about that other than he, he saw people have these computers and he knew that someday we would all be talking to each other uh, like it. we are so, right now. So just to clear it up, he didn't make a million dollars on the stock market with his Apple. No, I, I wish I could change the Wikipedia page. I should probably try to. He, he did not make a million dollars off of Apple. Again, I, I know I've said it five times. He did not vote for Ronald Reagan. Uh, he did not become a Republican. <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely. That's amazing. And sort of what, just lastly then, what was the one thing that you found out from doing this project that was surprising? that um made you think oh that's that's quite boggling i you know you probably assumed a few things beforehand but having gone through all his stuff which must have felt both interesting and a bit weird i just wonder. yeah um well you know i i wasn't fully sh sure of jerry's um political leanings towards the end of his life so so you know again not to say it for the 30th time but you know <laughs> it was it was good to to realize that he stayed a, a you know democratic liberal progressive but also, I think, I think the main thing that Jerry had that, that Abby Hoffman didn't have and Tom Hayden didn't have and all these other guys, Jerry was willing to be vulnerable. Jerry was doing interviews in the 70s where he was talking about, you know, sometimes I can't get an erection during sex or sometimes I feel intimidated when I'm in bed with a naked woman. Like, you know. You know, Jerry, these guys were all born in the 1940s, right? So they're the same age, roughly, as, you know, Jagger, Richards, Ray Davies, right? These are not guys that are going to do interviews and talk. The only person close to that might be Pete Townsend, right? Because if you're a Townsend fan like I am, you know, he'll say self-embarrassing stuff. Yeah. Right? Like he might say, yeah, you know, one time I saw Bowie and then I went home and I masturbated thinking about him, right? Or something like that. <laughs> like, you know. But most of these guys aren't going to do that, right? Now, Jerry was not, Jerry didn't have any homoerotic things. I'm not, I'm not trying to put him in that category, but he was willing to discuss the vulnerability of sex. He was willing to discuss his emotional vulnerability, right? I mean, you could have put a gun to, to Abby Hoffman's head. Now, you know, Abby committed suicide partially because he was manic depressive, but th that's not something Abby would ever have shared in an interview. Right. So so the thing that I really admire about Jerry is his ability to be vulnerable, his ability to sometimes say I was wrong. You know, he you know, he 
he later realized that, you know, he should have given women more support in the 60s, you know, he became more feminized. Um, so, you know, Jerry was was human uh, and vulnerable and, uh, you know, I think emotionally honest. Most people were not that emotionally honest in public. Yes, it was just a shame he wasn't around a bit longer, really, because it's obviously would have yeah. been fascinating another couple of decades, really. That's true. That's this true. is true. Indeed, I think we'll leave it there. It's an emotional goodbye, which you don't need to hear. Anyway, a massive thank you to Pat Thomas. Give me the time for that interview, um, talking about the book, about Jerry Rubin. The book is title, titled Did It, and uh, like I said, available from all good bookshops and also online, from Yippie to Yuppie, an American revolutionary. Um, this has been the C86 Show. I'm David East. So if you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, do C86 Show. Keep it positive. Also, I've been doing lots of interviews, um, mostly about 80s indie bands, but mostly sometimes 70s and 90s. So you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam, if you're that way inclined. Anyway, check it out. There might be something there for you. Any Yes, and that's it. Right. Have a great week. Stay safe.